0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP Faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Have you ever thought about the sun? No, you haven't. You only think about yourself. The sun just burns and burns for who knows how many years. Never takes a day off. Never rests. Just does its job, giving us light and heat. Giving totally free, super abundant renewable energy. As long as we can collect it and store it and there aren't clouds. There's no off switch, no chance to cool down for a bit, no variation in color, no vacation. And while it's doing all that, it's got all sorts of other bodies just circling around it because of how fat it is. But don't get too close, or it'll just smoke you. Once in a while, it flares up and lashes out. The older it gets, the more spots it gets. And then one day, if that day ever comes, it'll suddenly snap and just nuke everything around it. And then die. Die. Kind of reminds me of my life and career. Anyway, on today's episode, first we'll be mandated to use those sunny days sweeping the clouds away on our way to, well, nowhere really is the car, ain't got no charge in it. Then we'll work to figure out the meaning of life, or figure out the meaning of life as work, or something like that, I'm not sure. No goal update this week, I'll explain that when we hit it again next week. So call those guys back that keep nagging you about putting a solar roof on your house, And grab yourself a box for your things. Don't forget to turn in your badge at the gate. (sighs) Here we go. Here comes the sun. Doot and doo-doo. Here comes the sun, and I say it's all right. According to Genius.com, this Beatles song was written by... George Harrison, quote, following a period of disillusionment with the music industry, he skipped a day at Apple's offices and went to his good mate Eric Clapton's house. After feeling free and back in love with music, he wrote this song. Harrison was quoted as saying, quote, Here Comes the Sun was written at the time when Apple was getting like school, where we had to go and be businessmen, sign this and sign that. Anyway, it seems as if winter in England goes on forever. By the time spring comes, you really deserve it. So one day, I decided I was going to sag off Apple, and I went over to Eric Clapton's house. The relief of not having to go and see all those dopey accountants was wonderful, and I walked around the garden with one of Eric's acoustic guitars and wrote, Here Comes the Sun. Well, that's cute. It's it's neat that this George Harrison guy, whoever that is, some little-known songwriter presumably, thinks he knows what he wrote and why he wrote it, but I think it's quite clear that this song was written about the failure of the governments around the world to invest adequately in solar-produced electricity after the free flow of coal, gas, and oil were finally mercifully shut down forever. I mean, check out these lyrics and tell me I'm wrong. Little darling, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter... Little darling, it feels like years since it's been here. Little darling, the smile's returning to the faces. Little darling, it seems like years since it's been here. Little darling, I feel that ice is slowly melting. Little darling, it seems like years since it's been clear. These are people who are clearly struggling to live. For so long, they've been trying to just survive through a cold, dark winter when the sun doesn't present itself long enough to charge up the inadequate storage batteries. And without precious electricity, there's no heat, there's no hot water, no cooking, no light, and don't even think about trying to charge a phone or a scooter or a car. How many lives have been lost during this time? Humanity is clearly numb to the death, destruction, and devastation. But then we get to the bridge now this was i think quite obviously meant to be said in that kind of a laugh cry that one does when they're both happy but cautious hopeful but in disbelief wanting so badly to believe but knowing how often their hope was dashed upon the rocks just listen to this bridge sun 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 here here it comes sun 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 here it here it comes sun 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 here it comes, son, 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 here it comes, son, 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 here it comes. This song is a song of lament, a song of woe, and we just sing it because of the doot and doo-doos, completely ignoring the unspeakable pain and horror in the lives of these survivors. Well, no, no, I, I shan't just stand, well, sit, by and let this atrocity happen, not, while well, there's still time, and there is still time. In fact, we are so close. Found on SciTechDaily.com, headline, New Research, The World May Have Crossed a Solar Tipping Point. Oh, oh, be still my cold, fluttering, aching heart. Feeling return to my left arm. Be gone, pain in my jaw. Wait a minute, I may need to call someone. Nah, they can wait. Yes, the time has finally arrived. Quote, the world may have crossed a tipping point that will inevitably make solar power our main source of energy, new research suggests. So what we've got here is a study, but not just any study, a study that's, quote, based on a data-driven model of technology and economics. And the findings were unquestionable. Quote, solar is likely to become the dominant power source before 2050, even without support for more ambitious climate policies. The study was led by the University of Exeter, which is located in the country it's definitely found in, and an institute of so much higher education that it needed both terms to describe itself, the University College London. This study was part of the EEIST project, and although (laughs) you and I know what that stands for, for the sake of the other guy over there, that stands for the Economics of Energy Innovation and System Transition. The funding for the study, which is really the important part of the study, at least for the studiers, remember, there's a lot of money in climate-related studies, especially when they return conclusions that are compatible with governmental and global elitist desires. The funding is coming from the UK's Department for Energy Security and Net Zero, as well as the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. Oh, won't somebody think of the children? And yes, the C.I.F.F. is thinking about the climate future of those children, which is nice. But hold your cheers, don't drink up, and definitely abstain from smoking them if you've got them. There are four possible barriers that could bugger up the works. What are those barriers, you may ask? Well, they're quite obvious if you just think about them. First, the creation of stable power grids. Second, the financing solar and developing economics barrier. Third, capacity of supply chains. And fourth, the political resistance from regions that lose jobs. So what are those barriers, you may ask? I have no idea, but we'll get to them shortly. The good thing is that the study of the model presents a solution to these barriers. Policies. Even more than wealth redistribution and wealth theft instruments such as carbon taxes, believe it or not, the policies are going to do it, government policies or laws, rules, mandates, threats, tools of Satan, you know, those things. Now, before we get to the barriers, let's understand what's actually happened here. Dr. Femke gives us some insight into where we currently stand. Now, I looked up Mr. Andor, Ms. Dr. Femke, if you ignore the current woke feminist with the multicolored hair, the half-shaved head, and the obvious hatred of the patriarchy, and soap, think back before that image defined the left-wing tree-hugger, and Femke pretty much looks exactly what you'd expect her to look like, that kind of hippie look. And Femke, and remember that's her first name, is quite the academic. Looking at her academic professor page for the University of Exeter, I see that she has office hours on Thursdays from 10 to 12, online only, by appointment. Why? She doesn't say. But on her ex-page, I saw that she was a socialize, outside, mask-up, vax-up person. Right there, she loses some scientific and logical cred, as far as I'm concerned. Back to her academic page. She is a person who lives in the land of make-believe. She's simply a modeler. As part of the EEIST project thingy, she's, quote, "...improve the representation of the power sector in the energy economy environment model E3ME-FTT." Major energy technologies in E3ME-FTT are represented with evolutionary economics so that the diffusion of a new technology follows an S-curve. I've improved the power sector model by improving the representation of learning, getting higher quality data, and improve the representation of energy storage. As a next step, I'm involved in developing a submodel of E3ME-FTT for flexibility, storage, and hydrogen to gain a better understanding of the diffusion of high shares of variable renewables and the way sector coupling can help. She also did her PhD in mathematics in the realm of climate. Quote, it involved finding a theoretical basis for emergent constraints and improving statistical techniques. For some processes, a group of climate modelers shows a relationship between a past and future variable. Measurements of the first allows us to exploit this relationship and get a better estimate of our future climate. My focus was on decadal variability, historical warming, and climate sensitivity. <clears throat> Femke lives in a world of academia, where she thinks the world of models and theories accurately represent reality. I'd argue that in nearly all cases, they don't. If models are done very, very well, they can can get close, but reality has too many variables that simply cannot be accounted for, and, and too much randomness. Anyway, she... And the article said, and, and I can't tell you exactly where her words end in the article's writer begins, because the uncredited author missed an end quotation somewhere. No matter, the combo of Femke and this writer-author said, quote, The recent progress of renewables means that fossil fuel-dominated projections are no longer realistic. In other words, we have avoided the business-as-usual scenario for the power sector, Now, I think this is where Femke's directly quoted words ends momentarily, and a paraphrase of her comments begins. However, older projections often rely on models that see innovation as something happening outside of the economy. In reality, there is a virtuous cycle between technologies being deployed and companies learning how to do more so cheaply. When you include this cycle in projections, you can represent the rapid growth of solar in the past decade and into the future. Traditional models also tend to assume the end of learning at some point in the near future, when in fact we are still seeing very rapid innovation in solar technology. Using three models that track positive feedback, we project that solar will dominate the global energy mix by the middle of this century. However, the researchers warn that solar-dominated electricity systems Could become locked into configurations that are neither resilient nor sustainable with a reliance on fossil fuel for dispatchable power. They got paid for this tripe. I want to get paid for tripe. That seems a lot easier than what I've been doing for many years now. Let me try to break this down. They've created a new model with new projections because the old model with old projections relied on old assumptions, whereas the new model relies on new assumptions. Based on the new models and the new assumptions, the new projections project more favorably for their desired outcome, exactly as they had hoped. (laughs) What are the odds? I should create a model to study those odds. The spanner in the works is that if we keep using those filthy racist fossil fuels, you know, to produce abundant, affordable, and actually very clean electricity, then it'll just make it harder for solar to dominate Yes, the model projects that solar will dominate by the middle of the century if we get rid of fossil fuels. This is groundbreaking. I mean, I could use this kind of logic everywhere. (laughs) If I just don't purchase any more chips, my chip consumption will drop dramatically. And conversely, my consumption of other snacks will increase. It's like a magic formula. My favorite part of this nonsensical statement is that their new assumption and new and improved projections aren't based on a model like a caveman would use. <laughs> no, sir, it's based on three models, and not just three models, but three models that track positive feedback. And using that positive feedback, they project that solar will dominate. To illustrate what it appears they're doing, for those of you that have been following my goal updates, specifically my weight l- journey. If I were to model my weight based on the positive feedback only, well, it won't be long before I'll get so thin I'll literally disappear. Admittedly, I'm not looking at their data or their models. I'm not really even sure what information is actually available right now to a partially evolved, knuckle-dragging, flat-earthing baboon like me, but jokes on them I also don't care. What this sounds like is nothing but a positive feedback loop. You build the model to test for what you hope you'll find. Tailor the model to be more likely to produce the results you want, then filter the data to include only what you're looking for. Finally, collect your study money. There's literally no way this could fail, because if they fail, they won't get as much of, or maybe any, of that sweet government cash. Now, I promise, we'll get to those barriers in a moment, you can trust me. Would I lie to you? But before we do that, I thought we should take a look at where the world stands with regard to electricity production, you know, right now. I found a nifty little chart on OurWorldInData.org that shows the amount of electricity produced in the world by generation source from 1990 to 2022. Let's exhaustively look at every year of data and investigate every point on this chart. Nah, on second thought, let's not do that. Let's look at a few data points and draw some conclusions. Honestly, it's better science and data analysis than our hippie chick and her friends did. I grabbed data points from 1990, 2000, 2010, 2015, and 2022 to calculate the rate of increase or decrease over time of each type. I looked at it from year to year, those years that I selected at least, and overall from 1990 to 2022. Total energy production has increased 142% in those 32 years. Now looking at the standard tried and true sources, coal increased 129%. Gas increased 253%. Oil decreased by 35%. And nuclear increased by 31%. Then the so-called sustainable sources. Hydroelectric increased 100%. Other, I don't know what that is, other increased by 91%. Biofuels increased by 356%. Wind increased by 58,832% and solar increased by 330,482%. So C, solar has utter dominance. But let me give you an example. Let's say you had $10,000 in the bank and it increased by 100%. You'd have $20,000. Not bad. But let's say you started with 10 cents in the bank and it increased by 300,000%, you'd have $300 in the bank. Your return is outrageously good with that dime, but you're still poor. The $10,000 may not have increased by much percentage-wise, but that's because you started at a much higher number, meaning your ending value is fantastic. This is where we find ourselves with energy production. See, from 1990 to 2022, Coal has gone from 38% of all production to 36%, a slight decrease, but holding pretty steady. Gas has accounted for 15% in 1990, and now it's up to 22% in 2022. Oil went from 12% to 3%. Now, no real shocker there. It wasn't a huge player anyway. Nuclear has gone from 17% of total to 9%. This is the biggest mistake we're making as a country and as a globe. Nuclear is the answer, not sunshine and summer breezes. But I digress. Hydro has gone from 18% to 15%, so it's holding fairly steady. Then we get to wind and solar. In 1990, wind accounted for 0.03% of the total production. By 2000, it accounted for 0.21%. And by 2022, it now accounts for 7.5%. Wind is a bit player that moved from nothing to somewhat more than nothing, but still a small contribution, relatively speaking. In 1990, solar accounted for 0.003%. By 2000, it had more than doubled to 0.007% of all global production. By 2010, it made it all the way to 0.15%, and by 2015, it finally cracked 1.1%. Now in 2022, it's 4.5%. It's ahead of bio, and ahead of other, and ahead of oil, but it's essentially nothing. So although it appears that solar is just going nuts, that's only because it started with pennies, and now it's a few dollars. We're still poor. So when Femke says that she's modeling the rapid growth of solar in the past decade, yes, in the last 10 years, it's increased 1,000%, yet it's still less than 5% of all total production. Now, I did some searching to see what it would take for solar to dominate. I found one site, axionpower.com, who apparently did some calculations based on 2017 numbers. I don't know if this is right or not, but from past research I've done, this at least sounds reasonable. What he came down to is that to power the world, we would need 511.5 billion solar panels and about 115,000 square miles of area to put them on. Now, the Earth has a lot of land, but to put this in perspective, this would be like covering the entire state of Arizona or the entire state of New Mexico with solar panels in order to power the world. And as energy needs keep climbing, that area keeps climbing as well, and that makes a lot of assumptions about solar days and storage capacity, distribution infrastructure, etc. But Femke says that we shouldn't model the end of learning that a lot of rapid innovation is still taking place with solar, so just keep modeling that. Yeah, Well, okay, that happened with oil and coal and gas and nuclear as well. But as you refine and tweak and improve, the rate of discovery, the rate of improvement, the ability to innovate eventually slows to a crawl. Yes, I mean, step changes happen when a new amazing discovery is found, but that's the exception, not the norm. We can't count on a step change discovery, and we shouldn't model for that. But Femke is a real fan of solar energy and government money, so she'll just model what she wants to model. (laughs) Mind your business. Okay, let's get back to the article and the four barriers that governments need to enact policies on in order to open the way for solar. Not force solar. We're not doing that. Just make it so we must use solar or else. But before we do that, no, I'm just kidding. Let's hit the barriers and head on. Strap on your helmet and get your tongue back in your mouth. Here we go. Barrier the first. Grid resilience. Now, what you'll find with this barrier is that the way to overcome it really isn't policy. It's it's more money, really. Femke astutely observes that solar generation is, quote, variable. (laughs) You know, some seasons uh, get more light than others. Sometimes we deal with cloudy weather. And, you know, nighttime. So, unless we do something to account for the dark times, which is a pun but not a funny one, and end up having to rely on the evils of fossil fuels during those variable times, which are literally most of the times, we need governments to spend the people's tax money on things like putting in other super-reliable sources of generation, like wind. Because we always have wind, and what we definitely know is that there are no times ever in recorded history that we didn't have at least one or the other. At no time have we had darkness and calm at the same time. It just literally doesn't happen. We also need extensive electricity storage. Yes, that would be correct. Big, flaming batteries. One might say huge batteries. Probably the best batteries ever. Big, beautiful batteries. And to get that power from the batteries to the user, we need some massive transmission cables. But not just cables. We need cables linking different regions. So when my world is dark and I'd like to air fry some crispy fries and crank my AC down to a chilly 84 degrees, because you know, limits, and watch a government-approved propaganda documentary, I can use your electrons because I ain't making any. And then we need policies because... Remember, this is a policy thing she's talking about. (laughs) Nothing but just, it's just policies. Policies to manage the demand, such as incentives, which typically means government money, to charge or EV at non-peak times, just like everyone else. Anyone? Anyone see the flaw there? No? (laughs) That's... It's just me. And of course, some government subsidies are needed to fund R&D for all this. I mean, this is really spoken like a true government grant fund baby. She has no clue how the world works. Just let the government mandate and make policies and pass resolutions and crank up the printing press. That'll just fix everything. Okay. The second barrier. Yes, all of that was only the, the first of the four barriers. The second barrier, quote, access to finance right now only the wealthy nations are investing in low carbon power generation solutions there is some funding going on of middle income countries by the richer ones but the lower income countries they just they just don't have much solar we need to spend our tax dollars on solarizing places like africa now I can't get into it here, but keep in mind that what revolutionized the West, what literally made the first world, was innovation in technologies, such as power generation. She may not realize it, but she's doing nothing but repeating the elitist desire. We want to slam the door on the poor countries because we don't need them getting all uppity. The absolute best thing for those countries would be for the rich nations to start dotting their landscape with coal, gas, and nuclear power plants, if we did that, they would have cheap, reliable sources of energy, which means light and industry, refrigeration, clean water, sanitation, infrastructure, but we can't have that. In fact, studies have been done, and anecdotally, we we all know this is true, that shows that the Industrial Revolution was a massive contributor to not only wealth, but quality of life and life expectancy. By slamming the door in the face of the poorer countries, which, let me point out just as an observation, is being promoted by the left, you know, the socialists, the communists, against primarily countries made up of people of color, interesting, I think, but probably not, it's probably nothing. Anyway, by slamming the door in their face, we relegate them to their world of disease and short life expectancy, starvation, etc. But at least we're not putting that darn CO2 in the air. Yeah, if you're starting to think that we're monsters, you'd be correct. The third barrier, quote, supply chains. In order to make these solar panels, you know, millions or billions of solar panels that all have a life expectancy of like 20 years, if you're lucky, that lose efficiency every single year of their life that will need to be replaced and the removed panels will be... Well, nobody really knows what to do with all of those, but since we need to make so many of them... Well, we're going to have to mine, mine, mine. These suckers take all sorts of minerals and metals. And remember, we need extensive storage batteries. So let's hollow out that lithium mine, shall we? Let's get some of those little kids of color in those mines digging for our solar panel precious metals. The prediction is that by 2040, renewable energy sources, not just solar, will demand 40% of all copper and rare earth elements, 60% of nickel, 70% of the cobalt, and 90% of the lithium that's mined. At least we're not putting minuscule, relatively speaking, oil derricks in places or mining into the earth to find coal and gas, which is a very mature process. And Ends with the mining companies typically working to beautify the region and improve it when they're done, so we'll be digging everywhere in massive, nasty, dirty, open-air mines. We'll be putting solar panels and windmills just everywhere, and we'll be so happy. And the fourth barrier that needs to be overcome, remember, with policies and nothing else, quote, political opposition. Basically, we need to get the rich to buy into these generation sources. We need to get coal miners and gas refiners, fossil fuel generation plant workers to you know, to just shut up. We don't need their whining slowing down our plans. Plus, it's estimated that if we did this rapidly, you'll basically put about 13 million people worldwide out of work. That should be fine, though. We have a lot of people. What's 13 million plus their families? Between friends, right? But still... To show government compassion and love to all mankind, quote, regional economic and industrial development policies can resolve inequity and can mitigate risks posed by resistance from declining industries. Now, I quoted that exactly because I don't know what that means. We're going to make everything okay through government policies, I guess? I'm not sure that she actually understands, well, anything that has to do with life in the real world, to be honest. She basically says that we shouldn't try to force solar, rather governments should, quote, focus policies on overcoming the four key barriers, but by policies she means monies. Now I honestly think that she has no idea where money comes from, or how important electricity is to life at this point in history, or what policies are, or where rainbows come from, or where her keys are almost all of the time. I really think that she believes governments are the answer to all of our problems and all they need to do is sign on the dotted line and throw money at it, and everything will work just fine. I feel sorry for her, but at the same time I kind of think she needs to shut her mouth and step away from the computer and get into the real world in a real job and learn how the world works just a little bit. She's quite obviously clueless, and the problem is she's not the only one. I'd argue that there are very few climate scientists, modelers, or mathematicians, or what have you, that honestly have any clue how anything in this world works. When your entire life is lived in academia, and it's funded by school and government grants, and a large number of them live in large, democrat-controlled cities, I mean, how could they have a clue about how the world works? Well here's the reality, solar can't do what she's modeling, just logically. Knowing the vast limitations of the current technology, knowing that we don't have enough consistent sunshine, knowing that solar cells are massively inefficient, especially as compared to the amount of space they require, we don't have anything remotely close to enough storage capacity for the dark days and the nights. Nor do we have the battery technology to do what she's asking. We don't have the type of interconnected grid that would be needed to try and feed anywhere and everywhere as needed. And I'm sorry, but solar has been around for a long time, legitimately since the end of the 1800s. And there have been minimal real breakthroughs, relatively speaking. So she thinks this is just going to take off, that we're going to crack the code of all those things in 15 to 25 years. Uh, Color me skeptical. Now I know that the whole of the industrialized world is trying desperately to shut down all of these filthy CO2 belching fossil fuel using power plants including nuclear which somehow are also evil as well. Not China though. They're starting up new coal plants like I think literally one per week trying to meet demand and Russia? They don't really care what we think. The countries that are trying to commit energy suicide are the industrialized nations of the west. But it's not that they're only killing themselves. Oh no. No, no, no. That that would be too simple. No, This is a murder suicide. They're murdering the third world nations by not allowing them to advance where we were 200 years ago. We always thought China would overrun us by sheer numbers. (laughs) No, they'll be able to destroy us because we won't even be able to charge a phone or a razor or a tank. We'll just all be sitting in the dark listening to the missiles fall. Now, that said, I don't think anyone is even close to waking up yet, but at least we see a few positive, although forced, moves. Germany had to bring a few reserve coal-fired power plants back online because this little Russia-Ukraine skirmish screwed up their gas supply. And from what I've heard, Germany gets a bit chilly in the winter. Of course, the NPR article is entitled, quote, Amid an energy crisis, Germany turns to the world's dirtiest fossil fuel. (laughs) Hey, how about screw you, NPR. See, when push comes to shove, people happen to like to see and have heat and refrigerate things. NPR, another group of brainless meat sacks that have never pulled their heads out of their academics. Now closer to home, we've got a coal-fired power plant slated for shutdown in Kansas, given a new lease on life in order to power an EV battery factory. The irony. Yeah, one factory trying to save the world or make a huge profit before the inevitable collapse of the electric vehicle uses so much electricity that they need the world's dirtiest fossil fuel so they can save the environment. What a joke. A company in Michigan is applying to restart a shuttered nuclear power plant. This is a plant that Entergy decided to shutter, then sold it, and now, shockingly, there might be a use for clean, safe nuclear power contributing to the grid. And at the end of last year, the Biden administration approved $1.1 billion to help keep the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant open in California. I mean, I thought the lefties were all about solar and wind and unicorn farts. Might they actually be seeing that if they want to go all-electric everything, they're going to have to have some of that sweet electricity? I mean, it still won't work. We'll melt the grid into molten copper if... You know, if we do what they want us to do, but but that's a problem for later. And with nothing to do and nowhere to go, we'll have plenty of time to think about solutions or about what we've done. Uh, Look, I've said this before, I have no problem with alternative forms of energy. I truly am an all of the above guy, and this goes for many things, but I'm absolutely against the government forcing us to go in the direction that they feel they want us to go, especially since they're basically evil on the right and the left. They're all, save for a few of them, terrible. But at the same time, belief in a sovereign God means that I must believe there isn't one leader, not one politician, that's in place, even if they're only marginally there, that God doesn't have in that place for his purposes. Those purposes may be counter to mine, at least from a physical, earthly, temporal worldview. Overall, I know that his purposes, however, are for the good of his children and ultimately for his glory. So, you know, I'm down with that. I'm just not a fan of how it's being accomplished. It doesn't feel good. Admittedly, my plan will be much worse, which is why I'm not God. Well, that's, that's not actually the reason I'm not God or even a reason, but you're picking up what I'm laying down. So for now, we suffer under our current leaders striving to make change praying for change, not knowing what the next day, the next study, the next president will bring, just knowing that the overall direction isn't really good, at least on our microscopic view of the sliver of the eternal timeline. No, when we unhitch from the truth of God, we lose touch with reality. And This is seen all throughout the Bible, as people went their own way, they made poor choices, sometimes devastating choices, destroyed their own life or the lives of their families, their people, their land. We've been given some amazing intelligence and wisdom and knowledge that's just off the chart, but I'm more and more convinced that the more we disconnect from God, from the true truth, the more we fall into a psychosis of sorts. Our minds inherently know that God is the creator of our minds. I truly believe that forcing our minds to accept the biggest lie in all of creation and in all of history that God doesn't exist causes us to slip more and more into literal delusion, Now this may be a functional psychosis, a delusion that on a day-to-day basis is unidentifiable, and not everyone presents in the same way, but we get what we're seeing and dealing with just all over the place right now because, although incredibly knowledgeable and intelligent, man has lost the ability to live in reality, because they've consciously chosen to live in a fantasy land. This is a land where kids can't sign a contract, but they can choose their pronouns and their gender. A world where surgery is likened to changing your genetics and DNA. An existence where electricity is magic and can not only do everything, but do it freely and effortlessly and save the planet. A planet where the planet is being destroyed by man and man can save it, except for the fact that we can't prove it needs saving and we can't do anything to save it. We've done analyses on data we want to use, we've created models with built-in conclusions, we're spending money hand over fist to figure out the lesbian mating habits of hissing cockroaches. I'm not actually sure if that's a real study, but would you be surprised? While people starve or struggle to find clean water, the purveyors of and those who fought a war to keep slavery are now hailed as the champions of anti-slavery while still enslaving the very people they wanted to enslave to begin with, just doing it in a much more clever way. We kill children if they're in there, but not when they're out here. But that's rapidly changing around the globe, too. We can spend as much as we want, tax as much as we want, and nothing will ever go wrong until it does. But that's the next guy's problem, maybe, if we're lucky. I don't believe that when we get to heaven whether that's one at a time or collectively at the rapture, that that we'll have all knowledge. In fact, I kind of think that we'll start with very similar knowledge level as to what we acquired in this life. But I do believe that we'll have clarity like never before. We'll have the ability to reason and think like no human ever could. It will literally be the difference between looking through that foggy bathroom glass and standing right in front of what we're looking at on a perfect day with nothing to hamper our view through our perfect eyes. Even those with seemingly perfect clarity on this earth will marvel at how much they didn't fully understand. I hope that we'll be able to look back at some of the things we've come up with, collectively or individually, and be able to laugh and laugh at how simplistic and imperfect they were, and we were, now that we can truly think. We'll have no more flaws or fallacies in our logic, we'll have no more unfounded assumptions, We'll simply work and live in pure reality. Until then, I guess we'll continue to muddle along in this existence with these clueless people that are much smarter than we are, telling us how to live without even the foggiest idea how the world works because they don't want to know. All the while, we'll have to... Oh, look, here comes the sun. Doo-doo-doo-doo. There are four great questions in life that all people will either verbally ask or at least silently contemplate at some point in their lives. Those questions are... Are you going to finish that? Is it Friday yet? It costs how much? And can I have cheeseburger? Wait, no. I mean, yes, but, but no, those, those aren't the ones I meant to mention. Let's try this again. The four great questions of life are typically some variation of who am I, where did I come from, why am I here, and where am I going when I die? As all worldviews are in fact religious, even those that claim no religion, these are questions that every worldview attempts to answer. Now, ignoring for a moment if those answers are true or not, depending on your belief system, the answers may be more or less satisfying. One place we see one of these questions come up quite often is found in the Wall Street Journal via JackLimpert.com because I'm not paying for a subscription to WSJ.com headline, the big question in retirement. Who am I now that I'm not working? You may or may not be retired right now. You may or may not be looking forward to retirement in the future. You may or may not have come to the realization that I've resigned myself to. The retirement age for me is likely a few years after my death. No matter where you are in life, this question either will, does, or did apply to you. So, I ran across this headline, and I says to myself, I says, I says, Dan, this sounds like a perfect article for the old Logical Christian podcast. Now, most of the time, I kind of get an idea of where I'd like to take a segment based solely on the headline. And sometimes I get started, and I realize that the direction I was planning on going is completely wrong, and I have to replan my plan. Most of the time, I read the full article, start asking questions, either in line with my plan, or maybe not, depending on what I'm reading. And sometimes I start reading and realize that the headline was either misleading or I misinterpreted it or I misinterpreted the article or the article just isn't going to be very interesting to talk about. So, it hits the virtual waste paper basket. Now, this article, well, I formulated my plan almost instantly simply based on the headline. Then I read the article and I was thrown for a loop because my assumption appeared to be wrong. Then I did some more research and no, my assumption... I mean, it's, it's sort of right, just in a different way. It's not as obvious. Anyway, let's talk retirement. I probably make the same joke with one of my friends up in the Great White North monthly about how I'm just ready to retire. Now, I say joke. Let's just agree, shall we, that joke is a funny and a complex word. The reality, though, as long as I live an average life, is that if I'm retiring, it means I'm old now. And isn't that the cruel kicker to retirement? The ironic observation goes something like this. When you're young, you have the energy, the strength, the stamina, but no money and not a whole lot of time. When you're middle-aged, you still have decent energy and strength, less stamina, more money, but quite often even less time. Then when you hit retirement, you've got money, you've got time, but you've got no energy, no stamina, no strength. Yeah, I know that's not entirely true as stated, but the general concept is correct, which is why it's been suggested over and over that we should live our retirement first, then start our career, and then work until we die. Now, I guess you'd probably have to take a loan out on your future earnings or something. I'm not sure exactly how that would work, and it's not going to happen anyway, so I don't really need to worry about it. But when it comes to retirement, how many times do we hear stories of working toward retirement, having that big party, making plans, and then it all falls apart because of a diagnosis or a died suddenly type of case? At my place of employment, the receptionist at our security and welcome center was a wonderful older black woman. And I only give her color because she was exactly what you would think of as an older black woman. She was Loud and boisterous, she was fun. She was a Christian woman. She was friendly and kind. She was great. I mean, she, everyone loved her. As she neared retirement, she talked about the trips they were planning, plans with family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. She had her retirement party. She left for the last time, and it was a few weeks later that word filtered back through the industrial park that she had had a massive stroke and passed away. Still, actually, legitimately makes me sad to think of that. She deserved. The retirement time that she had planned i think of my brother-in-law's dad after working hard throughout his career to keep your power on or get it back up when it went dark working in all of the weather that you and i hid from he finally reached retirement and not long after he retired the first signs of dementia set in and then the decline in mental and physical health took over from there something i think most of us either have seen or will see at some point with someone Again, the plans that had been made were quickly forced to change. Now the wonderful end to both of those stories is that both of them were Christians, born again, children of God. And although we look at lives cut short, we know that this is the race. Both of them got to the finish line quicker than average and have been experiencing victory ever since. But not everyone is a Christian. In fact, I'd say that most people aren't. And and doesn't it feel like a lot of people die or become severely disabled shortly after they retire? Well, an article found on ElderGuru.com entitled Why Do Retirees Die Soon After Retirement looked into this perception. Now, they open the article with this, quote, Why do retirees die soon after retirement? There is no evidence that retirement necessarily equates to death. People still talk about it happening, however. Now, the article cites a study of Shell Oil employees and found that those that retired early at 55 years old and lived to be 65 subsequently died 37% sooner than those who continued working and retired at 65. It further cited another study found on WebMD that concluded that people who retire at 55 are 89% more likely to die within 10 years than those who retire at 65. Social Security has found that men who retire at 62 have a 20% higher mortality rate as compared to the general population. But interestingly, early retirement has no effect on the mortality of women. For those retiring at 65, another study found that those of lower socioeconomic status were more likely to die within three years of retirement. Those of higher status averaged four to five years. Now, the article does caution that it's possible that those that retired early may have had health-related issues. Those of lower means may have had more unhealthy lifestyles or less health care, either by choice or maybe not. So the underlying health factors could skew the data. That said, another study found that those that were healthy enough to continue working until they were at least 66 had an 11% reduced mortality risk. But even those that had various health conditions yet continued working to 66 or older had a 9% reduced mortality risk. So are you going to die if you retire? Yes. I mean, we all die eventually, right? But are you going to die soon after retirement? Well, I think right now the only thing we could say is it appears to be statistically possible. So the article goes on to discuss a number of things. But one topic, by necessity, had to be how to prevent an early death upon retirement. Now, they give some of the standard pro tips, right? Eat better, be at a healthier weight, stay active, don't smoke, cut back on or cut out the drinking, reduce stress, keep in touch with friends and family. And what I personally call the biggest factor, quote, find meaningful tasks, travel, hobbies, volunteering. Then immediately after that list, they state that studies show that maintaining a healthy lifestyle and emotional well-being is good for you. Then it goes into two paragraphs talking about volunteering and gives six different websites for organizations where you can volunteer your services. Now, why do they give any focus on living a healthy lifestyle? In fact, in their list of what you should do, five of the eight had to do with physical health. Three of the eight had to do with mental health, but only one of them had to do with something outside of yourself, and that's the one they focused on. Interesting, right? The website VeryWellMind.com had an article entitled, Eight Tips for Adjusting to Retirement. So what are their eight tips? Well, First, expect to go through stages of emotions. Next, structure your days, then set small goals, grow your friendships, consider an encore job, create a new budget, schedule volunteer shifts, give yourself flexibility to figure it out. Now, out of the eight tips, we see basically four that say to kind of ease into it. We see one that's just practical, right, the budget thing, one that's mental health internally, and two that are more external to you. So let's go back to our original article now and see what we've got going on there. This is a story written by a husband and wife, Stephen and Karen Kreider-Yoder, Yoder, something like that. They're both retired. She retired from her career as an educator in early 2020 at the beginning of the COVID debacle. He retired about a year ago from his career as a Wall Street Journal editor. She embraced retirement. He still can't bring himself to delete the weekly Monday morning alert he had set up on his phone for the, quote, enterprise meeting today at 9 o'clock a.m. He freely admits that he's still in denial. She says that she's never looked back, and that that's mostly true. The article starts with his telling of his story, but I want to start with her. She said her favorite time in life was doing what she was doing in her education career, quote, but suddenly, work wasn't my favorite time. A switch went off. It became clear that other interests took precedence. Now, she's still loving doing whatever it is that she's doing, just the whatever has changed. Now she, quote, sews comforters for refugees, I host church groups at our house, I volunteer at a prison guiding inmates who teach their peers to read and write, I teach an adult at the public library to read the newspaper and write his memoir, I chat with our boys as often as I can, and hop on the tandem bike with Steve on yet another long-distance ride. Rather than her career being her identity, she says that she now has a, quote, many-faceted identity. It's not perfect. There are times she misses the structure of the workday, which generally presents itself on days without structure or specific purpose. She doesn't miss all the stress of work, more the concept of the career, the ability to add value to the lives of others and help others. Her conclusion to her story, after telling a, a brief story about helping her sister set up plans for teaching children at her church, was, quote, I was happy to be needed, listened to, and valued. That's what I miss about my former work-life identity. Perhaps I need to find more opportunities to crack out the old identity, but without the stress. Now, Steve's story was somewhat different. He fully admits that the removal of stress and the time he's gained to, quote, travel, be with family, tinker in my workshop, read, and generally goof off while making no excuses about it, has been a positive in his life. But at the same time, he can't delete that Monday morning alert. Quote, It's one of the few links I have left to my old identity, and I'm not sure what my new one is. He said that he spoke with a retired pastor friend who assured him that it's completely normal, that he's been retired three years and he's still not used to it. But Steve writes, quote, A nagging voice in my head tells me I ought to decide who I am pretty soon. His writing, unlike Karen's, is more backward-looking. He remembers the same type of feeling when he graduated college, hanging around the campus, not wanting to let that phase of life go. He thinks back to what was. He envies friends that are still working, talking about their work lives when they all get together for a bit. He speaks of the traveling adventures he's had with Karen, how that's definitely a good thing, but at the same time, a mere distraction. And when he's back at home, he can't help but focus on, quote, what do you do? If someone asks him, does he talk about what he used to do? He doesn't think saying retired is really a good answer to the question. He doesn't have grandkids like a lot of his other retired friends, so he's not a grandpa. He doesn't do that. He just kind of is. He wraps up his story with, quote, Many of our generation have probably tied our self-images too closely to our careers. Perhaps retirement offers a fresh chance to take an unapologetic Popeye approach. I am what I am, and that's all that I am. For now, I'll leave the Monday meeting on my phone calendar. It's also a reminder that I don't need to snap to anymore. I can just pull the covers back up and decide who I am later. Steve is looking back, longing for what was, trying to establish something new. Karen is looking forward, thinking that maybe it would be good for her to pull that old her out of the closet every once in a while. Two career people, two retirements, two different views. Now, when I read the headline, my first thought was, well, you need Christ. You need to understand who you are in Christ, and rather than find your identity and career, find your identity in your Savior. But then they both talk about a pastor and a church, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. so... I wanted to find out more. Luckily, they're old, but they're at least somewhat computer savvy, which means they've both got Facebook pages, just like me. Looking at Steve's page, I see that they live in San Francisco. Hopefully, they look out for the human poo. Steve, step carefully. He studied at Goshen College. Before that, he went to Hokkaido International School. Prior to that was the Christian Academy in Japan, and prior to that, the Iowa Mennonite School. I see from Karen's page that she also studied at Goshen College, and I'm thinking that maybe that's where they met. But what caught my eye was exactly what just caught your ear, the Mennonite school. Uh Uh-huh. So what I know about Mennonites is that they're basically Amish but not as strict, and that's about it, which is sad since I grew up in an area with at least somewhat of a Mennonite community. My impression is that they're kind of a primitive kind of Protestant religion, but they're Christian. I looked them up, and apparently they stem from the Anabaptists, which aren't Baptists, and it appears that one of the major differences is that they're a salvation-by-works religion, which isn't Christian at all, because it's not biblical. That said, they're somewhere in the ballpark of Christianity from a very general sense. Let's just say that. At least that's what I thought. Doing a little more stock uh, digging, I found that the church they're affiliated with is the First Mennonite Church of San Francisco, which those words all put together in the same sentence don't make a lot of sense to me, but let's go with it. So I went to their website. Where to begin? On the homepage, they have this announcement, quote, FMCSF has returned to in-person services. Exclamation point. Those who can't attend in person still have the option of attending by Zoom. Contact, and then they give an email address, for Zoom information. Masks are optional for fully vaccinated individuals. They are mandatory for unvaccinated adults. Uh Uh-huh. Even today, they're requiring this. That says way more about them than they probably think it does. But okay, they're in San Francisco. A little crazy out there. I dug some more. I took a look at the staff page. At the top of the page is a very nice short bio on Pastor Sherry Hostetler, and lest you think that Sherry is an unfortunate name for a man, no, 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 Sherry is a woman, which per the Bible means she's not a pastor at all, and thus this isn't a church. Continuing on, however, we find the associate pastor, Joanna Shank, then the Minister of Music, Arts, and Formation, Pat Plude and the administrative coordinator, Jessica Bigler ul There are apparently elders, but they're not named, so I'm not sure if they're all women as well. I went from there to the What We Believe page. Their statement starts off okay. They emphasize community, discipleship, meaning following the way of Jesus in everyday life, and peacemaking, and reconciliation, The second paragraph starts, quote, As an inclusive and affirming congregation, and there it is. The third paragraph states, quote, we are a member of the Supportive Congregations Network and Brethren Mennonite Council for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Interests, a network of Mennonite congregations who openly affirm and welcome LGBTQ members. First Mennonite Church of San Francisco encourages our LGBTQ members to participate actively in all aspects of congregational life and church leadership. Words aren't making sense anymore. So, yeah, this isn't a Christian church. They they have no pastor. This this isn't a church at all, and, and they're most definitely not following the way of Jesus like they claim. Going to their Menno's in Action page, the second paragraph states, quote, Each Sunday in our service, we honor the Olone, and I have no idea how to pronounce that, the Olone peoples on whose unceded land we gather. As part of this acknowledgement, we have an ongoing relationship with Café Olone and have learned much from the co-founders Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino. We have also given to the Seguria to Land Tax, which supports an indigenous women-led land trust in the Bay Area. The next paragraph states that, quote, Our worship weaves together themes of justice and healing for our world, and each year we honor movements for justice through five Peace and Justice Sundays, celebrating Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Cesar Chavez, LGBTQ pride, labor justice, and indigenous peoples. Being a glutton for punishment, I went to their calendar of events. (laughs) Well, every Wednesday afternoon, they have an hour-long centering-slash-meditation session, where, via Zoom, of course, you know, COVID, quote, Pat will lead a time of centering and meditation. This will include a few simple practices to drop deeper into our bodies, a brief guided meditation, and a short period of meditation. If you arrive late, no worries. We'll have everyone on mute while we're meditating. Just come in and take your seat um that's not meditation per what the bible tells us that's eastern mysticism this is not christian additionally every tuesday morning they have a lectio divina session i don't know if i said that right or not either where via zoom of course you know covid Quote, Sherry will lead Lectio Divina, Latin for divine reading, a practice of reading scripture in a meditative way that was first practiced in monastic settings, but now has become popular among all people. Sherry used to regularly do Lectio Divina with her meditation community in Oakland and found it to be a wonderful way of making scripture come alive. Okay, yeah, I've heard that term before. But I had to look it up. I mean, bottom line is this. It it has its roots in Catholicism, which, again, can be viewed as a kind of a mystical, spiritual mindfulness kind of meditation practice. One of the main goals is to hear God speak to you, like, quietly, okay, just waiting for God to actually speak to you, which someone or something may speak to you. It ain't going to be God, though. Is anyone else shocked by this being Mennonite? I mean, this can't possibly be... Be Mennonite, right? <sighs> A few more things. Uh, their church is accessible to those with chemical sensitivities. And no, it's it's not that that you're thinking. They ask that you not wear perfume, cologne, and scented products. Some people's noses are just too sensitive. Poor little fellas. Or however they identify. I, I don't really know anymore. They also do the worship service first, then followed by Sunday school with, quote, good coffee, tea, and tasty, healthy refreshments. Yeah, if that doesn't tell you there's a massive difference between Baptist and Anabaptist, I don't know what would. I mean, healthy Mm refreshments? I got more curious. It, It appears that maybe this couple met in Goshen College, like I had mentioned, since they both went there. I went to their website. They're a Mennonite College in Goshen, Indiana, which, again, I had no idea was a thing. Surely I'm not alone in that. I found in one of their menus that they had a section on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Their policy is exactly what you think it would be. I also saw that they had a, quote, Goshen College land acknowledgement statement. Doesn't that sound good? It says, quote, We acknowledge that we gather as Goshen College on the traditional land of the Pottawatomie and Miami peoples past and present and honor with gratitude the land itself and the people who have stewarded it throughout the generation. This calls us to commit to continuing to learn how to be better stewards of the land we inhabit as well. It's all well and nice and great that they acknowledge that. Why don't they just give the land back if it's that big of a deal? Just just hand it back to the old Pottawatomies and the Miamis. Okay, investigative reporting over. Just thought you'd be interested in going on that path of discovery I went on and Look, I, I don't have anyone else to tell this stuff to. I, I had to tell someone what I found as my jaw just kept dropping more and more as I kept reading. And this comes into play in a minute. Now back to our retired couple. Per their Facebook pages, they appear to be world travelers, volunteers involved in various ways, and they appear to be very happy, healthy people. Although she does have a picture with the I got my COVID-19 vaccine frame on it. So, I mean, I mean, good for them. That's what I mean. Of course that's what I mean. So it appears they've got half of the formula for retirement working. They're staying busy. They're doing things outside of themselves, at least in part. This is one of the keys. It seems to be one of the main keys to a long, healthy retirement, as we found from a couple of those different articles we looked at. Now, a few years ago, I was listening to Glenn Beck. Now, love him or hate him, his political insights are very good. He had Rabbi Daniel Lappin on his show. Now, first off... Anytime Beck starts talking faith, religion, and theology, remember, he's Mormon. And yes, that absolutely matters, and you can hear it come through when he gets going. Second, he's not as well thought out in religion as he is in politics. I mean, if he was, there's no way he could remain Mormon. I digress. So for a while, he had Rabbi Daniel Lappin on his show on a regular basis. Now, having heard a few different rabbis speak on different subjects, having listened to Lappin multiple times, I even subscribed to his podcast for a little while, which I don't anymore, what I think I hear is a lot of very deep insight into the history and the meaning, a lot of the hidden meaning of the Old Testament. But it really seems to me that they do a lot of mixing of the Old Testament facts with a lot of extra biblical information, some of which may actually be true but it's very hard to tell. So, I've heard Rabbi Lapin speak on a few things that I've never been able to verify. But at one point, he claimed that there is no Hebrew word for retire. Now, if you go to Google Translate, I mean, yes, there is, right? In fact, if you go to a Hebrew lexicon for the Bible, yes, that there is a translation for retirement and retire, but at least in the Bible, not for the meaning that we talk about, not for meaning stopping work. Sort of, right? Now, now p- most people will point to the book of Numbers and say that the Levites were told to retire at the age of 50 from their service in the tent of meeting, but that wasn't a stoppage of work. It was a withdrawal from a specific service, and this is what Rabbi Lapin was saying. He says that our job in this world is to serve others. In the world of capitalism, we do that in part by doing a job that in return pays us money. He claims that to retire is to stop serving others, and there's nothing in the Old Testament, and I would argue in the Bible as a whole, that says that we should ever stop serving others. So, I agree with Rabbi Lapin in this case, but I did my homework, I didn't just take his word for it. Now, the Hebrew word translated in Numbers 8.25 as retire, or withdraw, or cease, etc., is the word shuv, shuv. It's spelled S-U-B with a whole bunch of little lines and marks all around those three letters, and it gives you the word Shuv, which literally means to turn back, or to retreat, or to return to the starting point. It doesn't mean to stop. And as we read in Numbers 8, quote, this applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting, and from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw or retire, or cease, depending on translation, from the duty of the service and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. The Levites didn't stop working at 50. They returned to a different form of service, likely due to the heavily physical nature of service in the tent of meeting. I mean, 25 years of doing that, they were likely just worn out by the time they hit 50. Now, we're not called to retire either, as in stop. Right. Sadly, there are those that are destined to suffer through disability, disease, or even death shortly after retirement. For reasons known only to God, this is how it is. But how often do we hear of people that retire, and all they have to look forward to is golf, or TV, or the bar, or sitting on the porch? And all that can be fine. It can even be your most favorite thing ever, but... And from my perspective, this could apply to any singular focus, especially if that focus is inward for self rather than outward in service to others. No matter what you enjoy doing, eventually, if that's all you've got, you're going to get your fill and you're going to be done. Now, obviously, there's no written or unwritten rule on this, but as Christians, we're only supposed to stop when we can't go anymore. A woman at my previous church, one of the most wonderful women I've known, I mean, she's elderly now, she's been through so many medical issues, and continues to fight through many, many more, and yet she serves the church and others as much as she possibly can. Sadly, way more than many of the able-bodied people at the church, and I have no doubt that she'll do it to her dying breath. This is the role of the Christian, or it's supposed to be. For the Christian, we're never told to stop serving others. We're never told to retire. We can retire from the workforce, but we don't retire from life until our life or our ability is ended. We don't retire from serving others, but not just serving others, serving Christ by serving others. So our couple from our article, they're doing the right things from a human standpoint. They even appear on the surface to be doing the right things from a faith-based standpoint, and for them they seem to have a fulfilling retirement. Yet we know from Isaiah 64 6 that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or filthy rags. Unless we're saved, no matter what we do is done for self. To serve others in general and the value of serving others in retirement are quite simply desires or needs that are ingrained in humanity, and the human benefit is statistically evident and holistically well understood, but if we're not born again, no matter what we do is ultimately done for self. True fulfillment in life, true fulfillment in retirement can only be achieved for those that are saved. So our couple, although appearing to be genuinely nice people, able to live a retired life of fun, experiences, service based on the church they're going to, can't possibly be born again. Now, I can't judge their hearts, and I don't presume to do so, but I think you'd agree that from the description of their church, if they were truly regenerated Christians, there's no way they could stay in a church that quite obviously, quite blatantly flies the tall finger at the word of God. They're currently living the best life they'll ever have, and by the common grace of God, they're able to live and love and serve and have a fulfilling life on this earth. But sadly, for as much as they do, their actions are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God, as they are not done for God, but rather for self. Steve, struggling the most with the question in the headline of Who Am I Now?, has his identity and career in the past and experiences and works. He needs, like we all need, to find his identity in Christ. That's the only way to find true fulfillment, true purpose and meaning in life. And that transcends career. It transcends the Monday morning meeting, the stress of the deadline, the satisfaction in a job well done, the raises, the attaboys, the ladder climbing. Finding identity in Christ never transitions. It should change and morph and grow but it should be the common thread that links all stages of life together. I've heard it said before, and I'm sure you have too, that when the heart stops, when you're put in the ground, our entire life is then summed up by a small one to two inch dash on a tombstone and the dash between your birth date and your death date. My dash, assuming I live to an average age for a male in the United States, is already about two thirds of the way carved. That's sobering. Your dash may be shorter, may be longer, you may be carving an extra dash at the end of your dash, right? And your dash may be minutes, days, or months from being finalized and set in stone, as it were. We no more know the day or hour of our own end than we do the second coming of Jesus, but we know that if the latter doesn't happen first, the former is coming and inevitable. In life, quite often the bulk of the adult years are spent working, marrying, raising children, running here and there, hither and yon. And we may be able to throw in some service to others here and there. In retirement, we generally have the time. Understanding that service to God by serving others is time, effort, and intent dependent, not dependent on money. So this can apply to nearly everybody. And as Christians, we have the mandate and we have the motivation. We serve our neighbors and we serve our brothers because we're supposed to and because we love our God. Our couple is still alive. They're still mentally sound. There is still time for them to come to real repentance and real faith in the real Jesus. We should pray for that to happen, for God to grant his gift of grace upon them. For those of us that are saved, I want to close this segment with a poem written by Charles Thomas, or C.T. Studd, a poem that you've likely heard a few lines of, but likely never knew where they came from. Stud was a British missionary who served with Hudson Taylor in China. He also spent time in India and Africa. He was born in 1860, died at the age of 70 in 1931. He wrote a poem entitled, Only One Life, T'will Soon Be Past. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way. Bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done, then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last." Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life, till soon be past. only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, Only one life, till soon be past. only what's done for Christ will last." Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life, t'will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. O oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasures on thy throne. Only one life, t'will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last." Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, Thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, 'Twas worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, t'will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be, if the lamp of my life has been burned out for Thee. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.